This is a podcast from Minute Media. What's up, Panther fans? Welcome to another podcast episode of the Four Man Rush. Today we got myself, Will. We got Kev joining us and special guest, Mike Wall again. So happy Sunday morning. And let's just uh, jump right into it today. Start with some NFL news. We had a big uh, news this week with former Miami Dolphins coach Brian Flores filing a lawsuit against the NFL for discrimination as he's just had some unsuccessful trying to obtain new coaching jobs. He interviewed with the New York Giants. He showed evidence of Bill Belichick texting what he thought was Brian Dable, congratulating for the job before Brian Flores even got to interview for the Giants. He also named some examples of guys like Eric B. Enemy and other coaches that haven't been able to have a fair hiring process in the NFL. I'll start with uh, you, Mike. What was your initial reaction to the Brian Flores lawsuit and your overall opinion on, you know, where the challenges that he's currently going through? Well, you know, I, I just know from, from, from knowing people in the Miami Dolphins building, what a leader he was. Um, a lot of people were, were shocked that in the manner that which he was released. Um, obviously a lot of that thing had to do more along the lines of, uh, well, some things came to light in this, this lawsuit, but initially everybody thought that was because they weren't, they weren't uh, in alignment with the quarterback. But, you know, you, you see this when, when a guy like Brian Flores does this, there's a lot of gravity to it because <clears throat> there's a chance that he's not going to get a, a coaching job because of these actions. Um, when I think about kind of systematically where we're at at this at this point, you know, I'm, it probably took somebody like Brian to come in there and shine a light on it. But when I think about it from kind of a global standpoint, you know, the fact of the matter is the way that a lot of these guys get hired now these head coaches is, is they come from coordinator positions and there are a lot of them are offensive coordinator positions. And we can start talking about who's, who's working with, I mean, who's, who's doing the hiring at the top, but realistically, you know, if you want to put the pieces in place and the structure in place to have success over the long haul, we have to be able to hire the right people in those initial positions. It's very, very difficult to get into the, in, into the national football league, whether you're an ex player, whether you're, you're coming from college, whether you're a guy who's just really good at physio, you have to know somebody. And I think that's, it's just like any other job, big job, big corporation in, in the, in the world, knowing somebody having that relationship is usually historically is what got, has gotten you in. If you don't have the opportunity to get in, if you don't have the opportunity to move up through the ranks, if you don't, if you don't become an offensive coordinator, it's just that much more difficult to get a head coaching job. And I think structurally we can talk about a lot of things again at the top and what has happened and why some of these guys aren't getting hired. But ultimately what you really want is you want to see, uh, I think from a player's perspective, at least, listen, if 73% of the, of, of the population of the National Football League is, is, is black, then it goes to thinking that at least 50% of the, of the coach hirings, if not more, should be African-American. That just starts making sense because you want to be representative of the people that you work with. Right. And I think with um, the way Brian Flores, I mean, he's a well-respected coach throughout the league. He spent a lot of time in New England with Bill Belichick. I mean, he came up the hard way. I mean, he came up from um, Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York. I think he played in Boston College, had a couple of good years before he got injured, and then just became established a great career for himself in coaching. So for him to come out and put his career on the line to try to accomplish something for a greater cause, I mean, you have to really commend him for that because it's a potential he's probably going to be may not be able to get another coaching job again even though I do think he's still in play for the Houston Texans job they do have a 
Patriots front office, so we'll see if he has a shot there. Well, he, he, he better be. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> he better be. <laughs> right. Goodness. You know, and my whole, yeah, what's your initial thoughts on this lawsuit? Yeah, because my whole thing is, you know, y'all, it's funny y'all brought up the Texans. I mean, think about what they just did with their last coach. Uh, my, what was his name? McCulley, um, the one that came from David Baltimore. Cully. Yeah. David Cully. Like, okay, with the whole Deshaun Watson thing, uh, to me, my personal opinion, and I'm, you know, we keep it real here, I'm thinking that, okay, let's have a black head coach to kind of simmer things down. You know, with the whole Deshaun Watson thing. Um, yeah, overall, you look at their record. Okay, they had a bad record. But if you look at the month of December, them guys were playing their asses off. They were playing hard, playing competitive, won a few games. And, you know, he was sent on out the door. There's been other coaches, and, you know, keeping it real here, whitehead coaches who have had some other records who got to stay around, you know, after their first year. You know, and for me, I think that's just another example of – uh, you know, when you think about the ownership of the uh, Houston Texans is just, you know, just one of several, because one thing we don't want to do, we don't want to say that all NFL owners participate in this. But, you know, we don't have no evidence, you know, obviously one way or the other. We don't know what goes behind the closed door of 32 uh, billionaires, um, you know, the billionaires club. But, you know, for me, that's just, you know, one example of, you know, how quickly you know, things can be viewed when it comes to the racism. Think back to former Carolina Panthers a coach, uh, assistant coach Steve Wilkes, uh, defensive uh, defense assistant um, coordinator under Ron Rivera when he was here. He went out to Arizona. I think he had a 5-11 and 11 record his first year. It was let go. Then comes uh, Cliff Kingsbury. His first year, he has a 5-11 and, and 11 record. He gets to stay. Obviously, he gets to draft uh, Kyler Murray and have time to turn things around, but it just seems that these are just more examples of that even when you do get an opportunity to be a coach, your leash is a lot shorter um, as a black head coach versus, um, you know, versus a white head coach. Uh, so for me, the, you know, being a black man, this is nothing new, seeing it in different forms, but uh, I'm definitely tip hat to Brian Flores for, like I said, willing to risk it all for 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 the greater good. Hey, I, I would like to add to that. Like, it would be interesting to see what contractually what some of these black head coaches signed up for versus, you know, like Brian Flores is a great example versus Adam Gates, who was his predecessor in Miami. Like, how are those contracts different? Are they like are inflation adjusted? Is he getting paid the same amount of money? Um, you know, are they are they willing to invest that kind of money in them, or are they kind of you know, is there is there potential to hang something over your head? As far as hey, if you want this job, you're going to take less than the last guy got. And the other thing with Cully is, or actually, you know, look at Cully in, in Houston, but also look at Brian Flores as a head coaching candidate in that in that uh, city. And I think their other candidate is Josh McCown, who you know played a hand, you know, played years. I don't, I don't think he was. I think he was a backup for most of his career um, in the National Football League. I don't think he's ever had a coaching any coaching experience whatsoever. And I'm pretty sure I read that he took last year off because he wanted to spend more time with his kids who were in high school playing football. So the fact that not Brian Flores, but any candidate is up against that candidate goes to show you what the hiring practices really are like in the national football league. I mean, there's, there's can't be uh, by any criteria that I can think of a reason that he should be a head coaching candidate 
in the National Football League without, you know, with zero coaching experience whatsoever. Yeah, what's interesting to me is for a college kid to come into the NFL, he needs to have at least three years of, to play college football so they don't let freshmen and sophomores enter the league, even though we see this past college season, you got guys like Will Anderson, Bryce Young, they can probably come into the league this year and be first-round pick. Do you think it makes sense to have the same requirement for coaches as well, have a year of experience requirement before they can be elected to a head coach? Because when you just think of the different solutions, owners are going to hire who they want, who they trust, who they're comfortable with. There's no really standard on what level of experience is required to be a head coach. So there's nothing preventing a Houston owner from saying, I'm friends with Josh McCown. I like him. I trust him. He's a good guy. He's a good leader. Let's hire him despite having no experience. I mean, what other solutions do you see to this, uh, Mike? Well, well, one thing is, you know, you look at some other sports and we don't really have a licensing structure in, in coaching. Um, you look at soccer, for example, and FIFA has a licensing structure. Regardless of where you are in the world, you're going to have to get an A license, for example, to be, become a, a coach that works with competitive athletes over a certain age. We have certificates that you can get, but we don't have a licensing structure. And one thing that is really difficult about coaching in the National Football League is that what you know? What's the the, the pathway to become a coach? Is you you can control your you get hired, you get lucky to get hired. You probably know somebody. There's probably some nepotism of some sort going on. Um, you control your room. Uh, your team does well, has success. Maybe you have an excellent quarterback. Maybe there's another reason you're having success. It might be tied to you. It might not. Um, and then you move up the ranks and eventually you get you get this head coaching job. There's no on-the-job training for becoming really what you are as a CEO, right? And instead of having nine or 10 things on your plate during the day, you might have 30 or 35 things on your plate. And we don't know how to manage that. We, we don't really teach these guys how to manage it. That's why when you look at the statistics of hirings, since um, some, a, a good buddy of mine in the National Football League just told me this stat, there's been 102 coaches hired um, since Mike Tomlin was hired for the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's all coaches. And if you've, you know, subjectively, if you look at who was successful, who's not, things like going to the AFC or NFC championship, things like getting a second uh, contract with that team or contract extension, less than one quarter of those, those hires have been successful, right? So not only are they not, hiring um by demographically what makes sense given the given the um that the lay of the land from a player's uh, standpoint but they're not having any success with these hirings uh, as of right now historically so there's a i think there's a lot that goes into this but you know part of it certainly is why not create a licensing structure that is that is a minimum basic requirement so that we know that not only do you know the x's and o's uh, we can teach you leadership qualities, how to build organizational culture, all the things that really go into having a successful program over the long term. Right now, uh, Kev, you look at some of these um, coaching hires. Let's talk with uh, Jacksonville, for example, since kind of lead into our next topic. I mean, Doug Peterson, I think that's a great hire for them. Um, very um, Good for Trevor Lawrence, good quarterback coach. We saw what he's able to do with Carson Wentz in Philadelphia. He's a Super Bowl champion. So I think Jacksonville got it right with this hire. We look at the other candidate, it was Byron Leftwich. I mean, reports came out that Leftwich didn't want to work with their GM, Trent Baalke, and instead wanted to bring in his own guy, Adrian Wilson from Arizona. And then I guess the report on the other flip side was Jacksonville wasn't willing to budge on their GM. So I guess Leftwich eventually took himself out of that job. Do you think? 
Byron Leftwich made a good decision to decline the Jacksonville job considering his other opportunities might be uh, minimal out there outside of that one. Yeah, personally, I think he did do the right thing. You know, when you take a job, we get one of these positions to be a head coach. You want to put yourself in position to succeed. And the relationship between a general manager and a head coach, it's, it's got to be like Jordan Pippen and Kobe and Shaq. It's got to be a one-two punch that's in sync. That is, you know, they they can challenge each other as far as like ideas and thoughts, but their goal and their path that they agree upon to get to the goal has got to be aligned and, and had the same vision. So with the with the rumors and of allegations of how league how around the league that a lot of people don't think too highly of Trent Baalke and what he's done, um, I definitely think that Brian, Byron Leftwich did do the right thing uh, because if we're not going to do this thing right, we're not going to do this thing at all. And uh, you know, several are surprised that owner um, Shad Khan, the owner of the Jetsman, is still retaining. Um, to Trent Baalke for, for whatever reason uh, that may be, you know, that's that's left up to them. But um, I, I definitely think that Byron Leftwich, um, he did the right thing. You know, you don't want this to be a, a one or two year thing and you're out the door too. You know, you rather wait for it to be the right opportunity with the right system and the right chain of command in place, owner, GM, head coach, and staff, you want all of that to be aligned right to where not only you succeed as a coach, but the franchise succeed as well. Right. Uh, Mike, how much input do you think coaches should have on one, who their GM should be, and two, over personnel decisions? Yeah, great question. You know, I've never understood why general managers uh, choose coaches and not the other way around. It does, it's never made any sense to me. Coaches, uh, coaches are the ones that are the stewards of the culture of your building. They set the tone for the building. They interact with your most important assets every single day at a much higher rate and, and much more intimate level than the general manager does. Um, coaches know exactly what they want. A good coach, a good coaching staff, a coach, a coaching staff that educates their coaches and develop the, develops their, their lower level assistant coaches. They know what they want from a personnel standpoint. It's something they can easily convey. So I've never understood. Um, I, when I saw Byron Leftwich make this stand and say, I'm going to bring in Adrian Wilson, who was a you know an all pro safety and and has, and has kind of gone risen through the ranks as a personnel guy now for the Arizona Cardinals. When he took that stand and said, "I'm I'm not going to work with Trent Baalke. I want to bring in my own guy," and kind of took the lead as the as the person in the position of power that makes decisions there. I was hoping that Shad Khan would go that route. I'm Doug Peterson's a, a teammate of mine, and I'm happy he got the job, and I think he's a great hire. But I was just hoping because of the situation that that Shad Khan would, would say, okay, we're gonna actually going to put the person in charge who has the most influence on this team, which is the head coach. Right. Some uh, more coaching news, I guess, the uh, moving to the Green Bay Packers. Both of their – a lot of their offensive staff, I guess, is um, parting ways with the team. We see Nathaniel Hackett, the offensive coordinator, take the head coaching job with the Denver Broncos. The quarterback coach, Luke Getze, joins Chicago to join the Bears where he'll be able to work with uh, Justin Fields. My question here, uh, Mike, it's a guy who follows the Green Bay Packers. What do you think of these two coaching hires, or do you think their success was more tied to the talent of Aaron Rodgers, or do you think these are good hires for Denver and Chicago? <laughs> it could be it can be both, right? Like, obviously, these guys, Aaron Rodgers was a good player before they showed up. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at – listen, one of the hard truths is that a, an owner or a president, a general manager – 
they want to hire guys that have had success in the league. But usually when you look at quarterback coaches, assistant or offensive coordinators that have worked with Hall of Fame caliber um, quarterbacks in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, most of those guys don't have a lot of success. You think about all the guys that, you know, play, that coached with Tom Brady up in, up in, up in New England. You think about Josh McDaniels' first trip to, to Denver didn't go very well. You think about, um, gosh, Peyton Manning, Adam Gase. You, you, I mean, I could start naming a bunch of guys. Ben Roethlisberger's you know, tree, Drew Brees. These guys don't just all of a sudden go find success because they can't bring that quarterback with them. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're bad coaches necessarily. And, but and it, it's just, again, we talk about hiring practices. I would be much more interested as a president in a guy, and I think this is why the McVay tree and the Shanahan tree is, is, is interesting right now. These guys are doing it with, with you know, middle-tier quarterbacks. Sean McVay showed how smart he was because he got Jared Goff to a Super Bowl, right? Jared Goff was a bust after his first year, and he got him to a Super Bowl. And so you think about that from, like from, a, from a difficult level of difficulty standpoint. I was always impressed with the guys who had middle tier guy offensive players, quarterbacks, and could get them very far, you know, very deep into the playoffs. That's be something that personally I'd be more interested in. But you know, having said that, listen, if you're in a part of a successful program, you're going to interview well and you're going to move on. It's it's, it's kind of part of the, the 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 discussion that we're having, and I'm sure those guys are going to do a good job. I I just think that, you know, again, we just look at hiring practices and what exactly are we looking for and looking at, right. And more uh, coaching news. Josh McDaniels leaving the New England Patriots to coach the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, Kev, we know he failed in Denver. He admitted his mistakes. He felt that he tried to go into Denver and be Bill Belichick, have control over personnel like Belichick does, you know, have that um, do your job mentality, how to create the Patriot culture in Denver, I should say. He said he learned from his mistakes and he needs to be more of a people person and be himself instead of try to recreate Belichick. You see him having more success in Las Vegas than he did for his first round in Denver. Um, I look at that as having success. Um, it depends on two ways. Obviously, he knows his X's and O's, so that 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 goes without saying. Uh, but really, my thing is as far as like, as he sp spoke on his mind frame and approach. I remember there was a deal in place with the Indianapolis Colts, and at the last second, he decides to pull out on that. And again, you know, that, <laughs> you know, where can you do that at and still be um, offered another job later on down the road? You know, um, that's, you know, that's that's poor taste, you know, and for, for my eyes. I'm coming from an owner um, in a front office standpoint. That's something that, you know, people had to look at. But you know, the Raiders being the Raiders, traditionally, you know, they're known to kind of, you know, disregard the, the norm, per se, as far as doing things a certain way. You know, it's, you know, it's win, baby, win. So, uh, I, honestly, I think that this is with the talent assembled out in um, out in Vegas uh, for the Raiders. Sorry, I kept saying Oakland. But, yeah, for the Vegas, uh, for the Vegas Raiders, uh, I definitely think he's in a good position. Definitely an ultra-competitive uh, division that he's going to be in, you know, going up Kansas City led by Patrick Mahomes, Los Angeles with um, uh, Justin Herbert. Um, obviously, no one's fearing a Teddy Bridgewater uh, um, and uh, what's his, uh, the other quarterback name out in um, Denver right now at this moment. Of course, if Aaron Rodgers decided to go there, that would definitely make the, the AFC West uh, quarterback you. But I, I think that Josh McDaniels, 
if he's truly learned all his lessons and applied, I think that he's definitely going to have uh, success with the uh, with the Las Vegas Raiders and really finally get them back to being a consistent uh, team. Because for me, I, that was the most impressive thing about this season: the fact that everything that the Las Vegas Raiders went through with John Gruden, um, with uh, the uh, football player that um, Henry Ruggs, you know, with the vehicle death. Um, that other cornerback from Ohio State, um, Arnett, you know, with all those different distractions, the fact that they still was able to get through that and make it to the wild card round, very impressive. Who uh, I can't think of his name, the coach that they let Sasha. go of. Who was, yeah, I hope he gets a, a job somewhere because that that's that's a leader of men, you know, to deal with those type of adversities and get them focused enough to fight off, rebound, and bounce back. That's that's what I like. That's the toughness and fortitude, uh, leader of men type mentality that I that I like. But uh, I think McDaniel's will do well in Las Vegas. I think it's interesting about how, how many teams are rock trying to recreate the New England Patriots. I guess the Tennessee Titans are basically Patriots South. The Texans are Patriots Midwest. Now the Raiders, I guess, are trying to be Patriots West. But none of them have really had success. I mean, Tennessee's consistently in the playoffs, but has never gotten over that hump. Mike, can you really create a, the Patriots culture and organization without Brady and Belichick? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I think, you know, you look at you look at the, his coaching tree. It's been interesting, right? Because for as great a coach as Bill Belichick has been, maybe his greatest accomplishment is is that is the fact that nobody can replicate what he what he does, even people that were in his building. You know, Mike Vrabel was who's who's having a lot of success at Tennessee and is one of the best coaches in the National Football League right now. He was a player. He has it from a player's perspective. So it probably means something different to him when you talk about the Patriot ways as maybe, you know, the intimate details of being a coach in the Patriot way are probably a little bit different than a player. But you look at, you know, Charlie Weiss, Bill O'Brien, Josh McDaniel, you know, Brian Flores is really the first guy who you, you come in and you go, he turned a pro, he understood how to, to turn a program around. He was clearly a leader of men. And, you know, to, to Kev's point, a lot of coaches, like I can go down the street right now and find a bunch of guys that understand X's and O's, the guys can get like hop on Madden and kill it, right? They know how to game plan. <laughs> Are you a leader of men, right? Can right. you lead a building? Can you develop organizational culture? That's what it, that's what you need from a coaching position. A head coach, that, a head coach has to be able to develop his staff has to be able to, to develop the players in the locker room, right? You have to develop a culture of what I call perpetual supremacy. And we make the mistake sometimes of thinking that, uh, you know, everyone thinks that they're special, right? Everyone thinks that they're special. I can recreate. I would like, I would never, I would, I've met Bill Belichick enough times to go, I can never do what he's doing, right? I, I could, you have to do it my own way and it may or may not work. But I'm not going to try to do it his way because you know he he's the uh, he's the mastermind, and I think our expectations sometimes are just uh, they, they fall a little bit short of reality when it comes to being able to replicate other people's success. Right, and I think that's the good point you brought up because I look at um, does the CEO how well the CEO coaching model works. I look at Mike Tomlin. He had one year as a coordinator, so he wasn't um, he didn't he had some play calling experience. But the first people he hired Bruce Arian as his offensive coordinator, and Dick LeBeau as his defensive coordinator. So Tomlin was the leader in the locker room, motivate players, develop staff, while he let the coordinators handle most of the scheming and play-calling duties. And you also saw it with Jim Harbaugh, or, yeah, Jim Harbaugh, who has a special teams background. And we had Vic Fangio as his defensive coordinator. 
You look at John Harbaugh, he had Jim Caldwell as his offensive coordinator, Rex Ryan as his defensive coordinator. But sometimes you do see that CEO coaching model work where the head coach may not be a schemer and play caller, but he can have consensus around him that can do those things and allow him to just be the leader and culture builder in that locker room. I think that's what Matt Rule, uh, his intent when he came to Carolina was that he would kind of just be the culture builder and leader in the locker room and have his assistants try to handle those duties. So speaking of the Panthers, some big news last week, they hired Ben McAdoo as the offensive coordinator. Now, Mike, I know McAdoo came to Green Bay the year uh, after you became a Carolina Panther. So you may not be familiar with working with him. Just when you heard from teammates, knowing his experience, he worked with Aaron Rodgers, had some success there, worked with Eli Manning, had some success there. What do you know about Ben McAdoo and what you think he'll bring to the Panthers locker room? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, Ben, he obviously he went down to to the New York Giants as a head coach. He's kind of one of the kind of one of the guys we were talking about, right? Had played with a, a Hall of Fame Cowboy quarterback and then didn't couldn't find success when he when he didn't bring be able to wasn't able to bring that quarterback with him. And Eli Manning was actually, you know, Eli was always a at the end of his career, he wasn't quite, you know, maybe the same guy that he was in his prime. But look, you hope with these guys, you hope that they can understand the system and they've evolved since, you know, the last time they were uh, offensive coordinator, like in the situation with, with, with McAdoo in Green Bay and not trying to necessarily replicate the same kind of success, understanding you're not going to have the same kind of player under the under center. Um, you know, players that I've talked to are, uh, they have only nice things to say about them. And, you know, and the biggest thing, but players just care if you can make them better, right? Can you make me a better player? Can you put me in a position to be uh, to, to find success and can you give me the tools to be successful? And so it, very quickly, you're going to be able to find out, uh, are, are we putting this guy in a position to, to, to are, we put, are we putting our players in positions to be successful? And then are we giving them the tools to become successful? And, and you know, it might not be pretty the first year because we still don't even know who the quarterback's going to be. But you want to see the structure and the framework being put in place. You want to see progress and development every single week in, week in, week out. And so, you know, hopefully they can uh, he can bring that to the table. Now, Kev, I think a lot of us said Matt Rule's biggest mistake coming from college to pro was that he had nobody on his staff with former NFL head coaching experience. Well, he kind of solved that with Ben McAdoo, I guess, who was a head coach for the Giants for a couple of years. What do you think of this uh, hire? You approve or disapprove of it? Um, my personal opinion, I think that with the whole entire situation with Matt Rope, um, been entering this third season on a hot seat, uh, this was the best choice for any decent offensive coordinator knowing what potentially may could happen after this year is the best way I put it. Because, uh, any, any up and coming offensive coordinator who, uh, has uh, who knows that he's uh, has the potential to be a head coach. He's he's not taking his job here. Uh, you got a you got potentially Matt Rule, even though he has a seven year contract, entering what could be considered a lame duck type of situation because it was said that he needed to hire a rock star offense coordinator in order to retain um, his services. Uh, according, you know that's what a lot of the uh, Charlotte media was saying. Uh, now. I know many people might not consider McAdoo, quote, that rock star caliber offense coordinator, but I do think that his resume does serve him uh, well enough to be the type to handle this situation. Uh, because when you look at it, you know, as uh, Mike just said, don't know who the quarterback is. Uh, the Panthers are very limited with salary cap. We got 25 free agents, you know, um, that are 
that's that's what was on the team that's uh, about to be uh, free agents. So this is not exactly the most sexist of jobs right now uh, for someone looking to come in who's who uh, who knows their worth and know their value. Uh, but I think that uh, you know, depending on which way the Panthers could go, and we can all speculate, uh, you know, one way or the other. I, I think Ben McAdoo is the right fit uh, for this position. Now, I haven't st- I haven't studied his style per se in depth as far as like what he ran was in New York to understand what he's going to do. Uh, we know that Matt Rule did say that he wants to quote you know run the ball more. Is is that what you know McAdoo was known for doing when he was in New York? Um, you know, personally, I, I don't know. Like I said, in Green Bay, he was a tight end and a quarterback coach. Uh, so we'll, it, it'll be interesting to see um, the, st- the style of uh, the f- offensive philosophy for the Panthers under Ben McAdoo. Right. And I think the two biggest challenges with the Panthers offense last year, I mean, it's no secret. It's the quarterback, you know, what is Sam Darnold going to become, if anything, and the offensive line issues now might you know, McAdoo's coach, Aaron Rodgers, as a QB coach, go from Eli Manning and now Sam Darnold. Do you think he can – his focus needs to be developing Darnold to try to salvage <laughs> – It's the wrong direction, isn't it? Get him something to work with. Listen, I, Sam Darnold's tough, right, because he came out of SC and he was the same guy at SC that you saw in New York, really. I mean, he, you know, he, he has the arm. Um, footwork's not perfect and had a lot of, he made a lot of turnovers and he's kind of continued to do the same thing. And, you know, again, the hard part is when you work with an Aaron, it's like, I worked with Aaron Rodgers, I worked with Tom Brady. Okay. Well they already, like they got it very, very early on. Right. And so like Aaron Rodgers has these touchdown to interception ratios that might never be touched as far as what his records are. And so I don't know how much of that you can kind of impart on somebody else. You can certainly teach the process and teach the routine and the habits. And we'll, we, you know, time will tell if he's that kind of um, if he's the kind of coach that can that can come in and make that difference in in somebody like Sam Darnold's life. But you know, you, you you thought that about Matt Rule last year too. You thought that about Joe Brady. Um, I don't know. You know, you never want to give up on a player because I, I certainly was a guy that struggled early in my career. Um, I don't know when the time is to say, listen, we got to cut bait and go find somebody else. But I, I would definitely have a really heated quarterback competition this year if I was uh, if I was the Carolina Panthers. Okay, and also in Carolina coaching news, they hired offensive line coach James Campen. I know he was an assistant O line coach in your final year in Green Bay. Had some success with the Packers. I mean, I think he coached eight Pro Bowlers, helped with the development of guys like Dave Bakhtiari. I mean, then he kind of, I mean, his units in Cleveland and Houston and his last weren't as successful as Green Bay. Uh, Mike, what do you know about uh, James Campen? Do you think it's an upgrade over the coaching we had last year? Yeah, well, I think it's a definite upgrade. I think there's no question about that. His resume speaks for itself. He he had, like you said, he had a ton of success in Green Bay. And again, uh, when you look at an offensive line coach, you know, I, I, it, I think it's very difficult to just look at individual development or an individual player development. You look at kind of how they how they pass off games, how they work off their double teams, what kind of system he knows how to run. James, James, uh, maybe first and foremost was a former player, and he was a, he was a real hard nosed, gritty player. So one thing that really helps, I think, from an offensive line standpoint, is when you have a guy in your corner that used to play and he can sit in the coach's office. He's not going to put these guys in situations where they just cannot succeed and then blame it on them later, which is which is something that really does happen uh, in NFL in NFL locker and in NFL meeting rooms. 
where an offensive lineman will, will run up, will drop schemes to to complement the passing game with stuff we just can't block. And um, you know, they just they said, "I oh, don't worry, we won't we won't put this on you." And then they run it ten plays in the game, and then ten, <laughs> on Monday morning they're going, "Well, you didn't block him. That's why we lost the game." You know, I mean, it, it does as ridiculous as that sound as it happens. So, I think James is going to be an upgrade. Um, you know, the, there's there's always different reasons for you know why why not the success in Cleveland, why not the success in San Diego. Right. I thought he had those guys playing pretty well. Um, I know some, I know some of the Texans guys, and they they really like the uh, they really like the way that they were coached in Houston, uh, despite him only being there for a year. And obviously a couple of their big guys went down with injury, but um, I think James is a huge upgrade. You know, he has the opportunity to do something special there because it's, you know, we always talk about the offensive line in Carolina and you talk about, you know, maybe there's a lack of talent. Maybe there's a, a couple of different reasons why they're not being successful, but truth be told guys, if, if you get a really good offensive line coach, it, it's maybe of all the hires you can make, um, Aside from a really good strength and conditioning coach, it can have the biggest impact on your team because they deal with so many players. And and just being able to uh, work as a unit is something that's that's highly highly underrated as far as the success your offense will have because of it. Right. Hey, you watched the Panthers' offensive line last year. I know people think the immediate solution to fixing the O line, oh, we need talent infusion. Use spend all your cap space, put all your first round picks, invest, invest, invest into that unit. When you watched the Panthers last year, was it really 100% due to talent getting blown up, beaten off the ball, or was it more communication and picking up uh, stunt splits and twists? I think it was a combination of both. So, uh, Mike, I want to go back to you for this question. What do you think the first thing the Panthers should focus on in fixing this unit? Should it be go all out investing in the unit, or is it more about getting some cohesiveness with a certain five players and helping avoid those miscommunication sacks that were given up? Well, I think you look at the talent you have in your room, whether you have, you know, eight guys in there, five, ten guys in there, but and you, you have to put in a system in place. You have to have a, a structure of communication that everybody's on the same page. You have to be able to teach concepts. You have to be able to to teach communication in the trenches, your pre-snap reads, being able to pass off games. I mean, listen, when you, when you watch them last year, did they struggle? Absolutely. Did the entire offense struggle? Do you have a quarterback back there that maybe doesn't, breed confidence in, in the rest of the group. I think all those things are true, but they do, they miss pre-snap reads. They miss passing off games. I mean, they, you're losing on things that you shouldn't be losing at. Like they're not physical losses. They're mental losses. They're above the shoulders losses. And if you can get a guy in there that just improves that, you're going to see a market improvement in that team. Now, having said that, uh, does it, you know, do, does having really good players around help? Yes, because it, it, there's a, there's a knock on effect of, when I when I come in and I'm confident and I can I know I can beat beat the brakes off the guy across from me and I'm a little bit louder and more definitive in the way I communicate and I'm a little bit stronger on my double teams like that not only resonates with the guy next to me but actually resonates down the entire offensive line and so you know I think they're going to need both of those things but bringing a guy in like, like Camp who's going to make sure that everybody knows the call on every single snap is going to be is going to have a huge positive impact uh, impact on the team. I'm going to go to you, uh, Kev. What's your initial thoughts on the hiring of James Campen, and what do you want to see him accomplish with this Panthers O-line unit? Uh, as far as my initial thoughts, I mean, obviously I had to research the guy. You know, I can't, <laughs> you know, front the cat like, oh, that's the one that's been on my radar. Uh, but, you know, once I uh, peeled back the layers and, and you know, got the most, what I felt, reliable information from the Internet, and then I went back and looked at the uh, statistics uh, that Green Bay had during, 
during his tenure? Uh, because like I said, he started off, and Mike, you don't want to help me out. You think you say started off as a, like a assistant quality coach at first, and then he, he was our, to- he was our assistant line coach, and then I think I think he was tight ends coach for a year, and then he and then he went over with Joe Philbin. He was mm-hmm. assistant again with the line, and then he became a head line coach when Joe moved on to Miami. Okay, yeah. So uh, yeah, so it said that uh, you know he was with Green Bay from 2004 to 2018. So that's that's 14 years, um, you know. And I, I really think that uh, you know. I really think that based on what I saw and then when you look at, you know, the type of numbers, I also looked up at sacks and pressures and um, also looked at penalties as well. Um, he's definitely um, in a, a, a very significant upgrade, um, I feel like, for the, uh, for the for the Panthers as far as what we want to do. Now, what I'm curious to see is, you know, Mike, you brought up a great point about it, where it's been mental and where there's talent. I feel like where the Panthers took losses at and the passing pass blocking was mental. And I felt like where they took losses at in the run game was talent and physical because there was several times, you know, when, when uh, we would always, you know, watch the all 22 when it came out on Tuesdays and we would see guys, you know, they, they doing the double team or they're getting to the block, but they're just like, you know, getting the asses handed right back to them. Like it was just clearly, uh, it wasn't a lack of effort. It was just a lack of execution. And I just think that yeah. that all. But that's technique, though, right, Kevin? A lot of that's technique, though, right? Like you watch Michael. It's Michael Jordan, right? Number 73. Yes, right. 73. Yes, yeah. Him. Yeah. He, like like he like he's, he comes off the ball so high that he's going to get beat. Every, I mean, he's going to have a hard time being successful. And you just have to determine whether or not that's a technical issue or that's just like a mobility thing he can't fix. But mm-hmm. like I agree with what you just said. They get beat physically. But I think. If you have a guy who's more of a technician, like a technical development guy, I think that that plays a big part of that. So, would you say James is a technical guy? Yeah, again, because he's a former player and he wasn't like the best athlete. Like, here's here's the best ideal coach is is a guy who played the position and then wasn't a star that just kind of could do. Like Walter Jones would be a tough coach because he'd be like, "Well, I just go block the guy." That's what I did. Right. <laughs> you know, and, but if you get a guy who wasn't a phenomenal athlete, that person had to rely on technique. Talk you speak in terms of inches, aim small, miss small with your hands. Right. But you have to you have to know those little nuances of the game in order to find success at the highest level. So those are things that he can impart. Those are the details that he can impart to these guys. I know from experience and I know the guy that, you know, obviously James was um, an assistant when I was there. And the guy that he was the assistant to was was also a guy who who tried to ensure that technically we were very sound. So I know that's part of his kind of his growth uh, trajectory when he was a younger coach. And I haven't been around him in years, but I I can only assume that 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 has uh, been maintained. Right, and look at what he's coming into now. I mean, there are a mix of veterans on the offensive line unit, but he got Brady Christensen. I mean, very good athlete at the position, but. Still needs a lot of work technically. Um, Deontay Brown, I think he had to get his weight down coming into the year. He'll get an opportunity to probably develop. And then Michael Jordan, what is he, Kev, second-year player? So there's still a lot of young pieces to the offensive line that could pretty use a lot of coaching and development. Um, What do you think Camping will bring for those uh, young guys, Mike? Well, I mean, just like we're talking about, I I think that when you start out as an offensive lineman in in this league, um, and you know, first of all, 
we talked, I, I don't know enough about these players, but you know, if you, again, we, I think we said this earlier, like if, if you had to lose 30 pounds to get on the field, you know, that's a guy from a behavioral standpoint, I start, I, I want to really keep my thumb on and make sure that he's, he's all in, he's committed. Right. So um, when I, when I look at like your younger guys, I want to take them and I want to just sit down and go over the basics of the positional requirements you have for, for, for offensive line play. I want to talk about our initial footwork into contact. I want to talk about, you know, my, my blocking uh, for, uh, methodology is based on step, bend, target, and roll. And we use those four words to kind of describe the themes of, of entering into confrontation. And we're going to make sure that you're the absolute best at the basics before we step on the field so that you can be, you can start putting those patterns together to create techniques. And then you add your decision-making process. And now you are actually evolving into having skill and being able to execute scheme. So a guy like camp, if he can come in and spend the time, because this is where a lot of coaches fall short. Now, will you spend the time on foundational technical mastery, foundational knowledge of your position and helping your athletes create routines that promote habits that are going to be in your best interest, right? Most of us now, most of the coaches now, they'll jump right into scheme. They'll they'll jump right into the opponent, and we'll kind of gloss over this stuff like it's not important, when actually it is the most critical thing they can learn as a young offensive lineman. And you know, when you say that, Mike, it makes me think about that movie. You remember that movie uh, Coach Carter with um, Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah, and when he first got to the team, all the, he said, "Now I know we didn't discuss offense, but what do we do? We run. Well, what you think I want y'all to do tonight? Run." And I think that <laughs> you know, like I said, they didn't discuss, uh, like I said, they didn't discuss schemes or anything like that. But I, I would, re- I would rather take my chances with a offensive line that's more fundamentally sound and maybe not up to par as of yet with the scheme than than vice versa. Because at the end of the day. Uh, good technique uh, and 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 good knowledge of what to do, I think, will translate into more uh, run block win rate and pass block win rate than just yeah. simply, you know, going to a certain spot and, oh, you're supposed to get this guy. All right, well, when I get him, how do I neutralize him? You know, most players know where to go, but what do you do with the with the defender once you get him there? So, I, I I really would uh I really would like to think that um, and I know coaches are, are limited to what they can access to the players in the off season. Um, I think they can't really contact into a, like tr- OTAs or something like that, Mike. Yeah, yeah. But, so I don't but, know if they could do it through Zoom. Like if we can send out a list, like hey, these are the things technique wise. Uh, it, it'd be nice if they can get a head start legally if yeah. possible. Right. And why? And here's the thing: it's insane to me, right? Is so all you, first of all, you have to make some assumptions. You want to assume that these guys actually want to be good because they want to, for whatever reason, they want to get paid. They want to get you know make the Hall of Fame, whatever it is, right? Why do we? Why do you not have like a master class on video of this is exactly what the expectations are? Here's how we're going to talk about things. I can literally detail out each. Hey, we're going to talk four to six inch timing step. Second step is going to be retracing your first. You know, we can go through the whole thing. If you want to get if you want to get started early, talk about our language. I mean, most importantly, talk about the way we're going to communicate, right? And then start talking about the details of, of footwork, details of hip height, details of hand placement, etc. Starting with your stance, obviously, right? And there is, like, I, I completely agree with you. You know, we lose more games in the National Football League because of bad technique than we do scheme busts. You know, 
And and that's something I I I bring up all the time when I talk to you know, pro coaches. It's like we're we're spending all this time talking about you know these offensive defensive geniuses, but I guarantee you, I you can give me an average roster with an average quarterback, and if you give me the opportunity to coach them up so they're the best of the basics of their positional requirements, we're gonna that's a playoff team. You know, that's that, it's, it's really it sounds it's not easy, but it's pretty simple, right? You just have to be willing to put in the time. And we've gotten really enamored with scheme and whose coaching tree you're part of and this, that, and the other thing. When in reality, it's like invest in the players, allow the players, allow the players the opportunity to become the best versions of themselves, give them the tool set to be successful and, and give them a framework so they understand what that what that's supposed to look like. And you're gonna you're gonna find success more often than not. Right. And I think you can kind of see how it translates on the field. Like one of my favorite coaches the Panthers had, I thought he was an asset to the organization, was John Masco. I mean, you saw he didn't have the most, he didn't have first round picks across the line. He had, um, I think Ryan Khalil was a second round pick, if I recall. Norwell was an undrafted free agent. Trey Turner was like a second round pick. Michael Orr, when he came on board, was kind of a veteran journeyman. Mike Rimmers was another kind of journeyman type player. But he got them playing well. I mean, I think they were one of the top 10 offensive lines during their best season just because of um, being on the same page, communicating well. I know Ryan Khalil's very smart above the shoulders. They had a pretty good season together. So I just think that kind of shows the impact that a great offensive line coach can have. And now yeah, you look at Masco with Washington. I mean, another unit playing well. That's a, that's another case, too, of, of understanding who your personnel is in the backfield right and and creating a system where you have this you have this weapon at your quarterback position so you can do some unique things and now because of that you have a guy like I, I love talking about Norwell because he played left guard and I, I just love the way he played when he was in Carolina um you took that position so you had this really smart heady guy who clearly was an absolute unit he was a really good player and he was a really good athlete like an underrated athlete as well but then you had next to him, and Trey Turner was a really good athlete who didn't mind getting physical. But Norrell was just kind of this, like, street fighter. He was just a brawler, right? But if you watch his footwork, it was very, very technical. He was very, very detailed. And because of that, he could translate all of that kind of aggression onto the field of play and have success and be that guy who went over and smashed the defensive end. He was great on double teams. And I think that he was all pro one or two years there, yeah. deservedly so. Trey Turner as well. But, you know, the interior of that offensive line was their strength because, again, they could double team and they could pass off games. And if you have a well-coached line, that's what you should be able to do. Right. Okay, so finish the show, switch gears a little bit. We had some big um, event this week with the Senior Bowl. I guess this is a big opportunity for pro scouts to look at a future potential draft base. And I think the big uh, topic of discussion this week was the quarterbacks at the Senior Bowl. We had Malik Willis, very explosive athlete, can run well, big arm, still needs a lot of work fundamentally. And then Kenny Pickett, who's more of the polished quarterback, accurate, very productive senior year at Pittsburgh. Uh, Mike, when you're evaluating quarterbacks, I know this has kind of been the topic of discussion the last few years with the emergence of Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. Do you care more about the quarterback ceiling and what he can be or how polished he is coming into the league? <laughs> well, it, it, unfortunately, it all depends on how long your contract is as a coach, right? right? That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the honest answer. You, would, you obviously would say ceiling. 
you know, I, I, I think if you have a guy that has a really high ceiling, the problem is um, if you look at the guys that got drafted this year, I think you would, everybody would agree that Mac Jones had the lowest ceiling of all those first round draft picks right. um, physically, but he ended up, you know, arguably having the best season. Um, and you look at the last couple of years, you look at a guy like Justin Herbert, how did he fall through the cracks given the, given how explosive, how physically gifted he is? How did he make it to whatever, you know, he wasn't the top pick in the, in the draft. I know he was, he was a first round draft pick, but his talent kind of jumps off the charts, but they didn't think that he was going to be a, you know, a, a game ready player until, until, uh, you know, his the starting quarterback got hurt and he had to jump in very, very early in his career. So for me, it's, it's, it's always about ceiling because I believe in my ability to develop talent. But I think from a coaching perspective, you really have to take into account how many years you have left on your contract. Right. When you look at high ceiling players, I know a quarterback you played with that a lot of people are familiar with was uh, Brett Favre. I think perfect example of a high ceiling guy who played on two teams. I mean, can make every throw out there. What does having a guy like that at the position just do for the rest of the team? <laughs> oh, confidence. Yeah, you just breed confidence because you you're never out of a game. Um, you know that if as long as you have a guy like that in the in the backfield, you give yourself a chance. Um, and I, I've I've told this story before. I mean, one thing that Brett could do is he was so at ease with himself. He was so confident. He was extremely smart. Extre- I mean, he could teach a he's a PhD level intelligence when it comes to running that Mike Holmgren West Coast offense, Mike Sherman's offense, and he just kind of showed you that you didn't have to manufacture emotion. You didn't have to live in like that fight or flight state all the time to play football. You could, you could be relaxed. You could work hard, you know, kick ass, have fun doing both and um, go into these games with, with a little bit of excitement and nervousness, but never anxiety about, or excuse me, anxiety or excitement, but never nervousness about, um, you know, whether or not you're going to be able to play well and perform. He was just a guy that had confidence. He could perform every time he, he stepped on the field. Uh, Kevin, as Panther fans, I think we've kind of experienced success you know, building the team both ways. We had Cam Newton, generational athlete, high ceiling player. We had Jake DeLome, who didn't have as much talent as a Cam Newton, but still found ways to win and get it done. What's your preference at the quarterback position? Build the roster and have a quarterback that can just, you know, get enough done? Or do you want the quarterback to really go out and carry the team and win games for you like a Cam? Oh. Seeing that I've seen the two extremes on both sides with uh, Jake DeLone and Cam Newton, um, I, I need my quarterback to be fundamentally sound. You know, it's going to be chaos in the pocket when shit goes st- – I'm sorry, when stuff goes bad. <laughs> that's that's how much I've seen over the years. But anyway, when things go bad, you know, you, you really want him to rely on his techniques and his fundamentals to, you know, step up in the pocket, pocket mobility. Uh, don't stare down your target. Uh, you know, keep the, try to keep the safeties in the middle of the field and then deliver um, a catchable ball. Those are things that, for me, scream out fundamentally um, sound. We've seen the flash and the great highlights, you know, with athletes, and we've seen the quarterbacks that, you know, kind of, you know, grind through. You know, they, they do just enough to get there. Uh, so whether you're athletically gifted or you just got that spunk and moxie, whatever you call it, I just want you to be fundamentally sound. Um, and, and consistent with your fundamentals so that uh, when that pressure comes, when when things go off script, when something's done that you that you wasn't ready for, um, you can you can never go wrong with relying on your fundamentals to uh, to get you to the uh, next play. 
Uh, Mike, I guess in your situation, you've played with both extremes. You've had a Jake DeLome and you've had a Brett Favre, two kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. You kind of discussed the difference in the mentality of the offense, depending on, I guess, the ceiling of the quarterback you have. Yeah, and I don't want to sell Jake short. Like, Jake was a good quarterback in this league. Right. Um, I, I played with some bad quarterbacks. Some of his backups were bad, yeah. you know? Like, Derek, we had Derek Carr, and he was the first pick in the draft. That kid, he was a bad quarterback. Right. And he had all the talent in the world. Maybe, the, you know, those are kind of the extremes that I look at because I think Jake was pretty fundamentally sound. He got rid of the ball and, and, you know, he was a lot of things he could do. But when you have a limitation at the quarterback position, you know that you have a limitation in the quarterback position. Well, let's just put it this way. Like John, John Fox was a defensive coach, right? right? So he was happy for us to kind of strive for mediocrity uh, as a Carolina Panthers offense. Like he, if his, his whole thing was like, if you guys score 18 points, we're going to win because they're not scoring 19 against our defense. So that was his, that was his mentality. And so you're going into these games and listen, you know, from an offensive line standpoint, you're going to run the ball more. You're going to put, you're going to run these, these routes that are, you know, Steve Smith is kind of option one and two. And when you get in situations because they're bringing too many guys in the box, they're bringing eight, maybe nine men in the box. If we're going, you know, double tight end and, and Brad Hoover at fullback. Now you're going to get those one V ones with Steve, or you're going to get your secondary guy, Ricky Prohl, you know, is going to have that opportunity to make a big play. Um, but you just don't like you never go into a game like, man, we're, we're about to drop 40 on these guys. Like it's going to happen. Like when, when you're playing, when I was playing in Green Bay and you have a top three offense with all the weapons that we had, um, we're, we're thinking every weekend and we're, we're dropping at least five touchdowns. Like we, we just thought we had that capability. We weren't going to do it every week, but that was our, our mentality. Right, I think one thing you see that you want from a quarterback is to be able to elevate his game when he needs to. I mean, Jake DeLone said what you want about him. He had probably one of the best Super Bowl performances ever for a QB. I mean, the way he went probably a best playoff run too. In 2003, you get that game-winning touchdown to Steve Smith as well. So you saw him be able to elevate his game when the team needed him the most. And I think that kind of became the identity of the Panthers and getting that nickname, Cardiac Cats, as well. So with five minutes uh, left, Mike, you want to go just give our fans a quick uh, overview of what's going on with Process to Perform, anything, any updates uh, going on? Yeah, sure. You know, we um, – so – from a from a podcast, so Process to Perform is really a platform I use to help parents, players, and coaches uh, kind of you know develop the tool set to become elite. And you know, part of that is we do a player development platform or player development podcast. Excuse me, uh, we did one y yesterday with Daniel Guzman. He was the uh, head performance director for LAFC, LA Galaxy uh, men's national team on the soccer side. We deal with all sports, all confrontational sports. Um, performance psychologist uh, Rick Pereira was on a couple of weeks ago, and. Just, I think there's really valuable insight for for athletes, for for coaches, and for parents, kind of looking to understand what above the neck we what what changes we can make in our process that are going to give you the most impact. And then we have our total athlete development platform. I work with pros down to preteens and all confrontational sports, um, really working on that tool set to become the best version of yourself, to become elite, to get to that next level. Whether that's a, you want to get a college scholarship, or that's you want to go into into the professional ranks and and listen, you know, that's not a uh, it's not a certainty that every every athlete's going to go out there and be the next Michael Jordan. What we're doing is we're putting you in the best position to be successful or focusing on three themes, mindset, development, technical mastery and ownership decisions. And so we go through a, a, a process with that over over four months that um, we really help these kids understand how to kind of take control uh, and ownership of their careers, take control of their process and give themselves the best chance to be successful. We work with the athletes, we work with the parents. It's a uh, it's a very fulfilling. Uh, um, it's a very fulfilling job, actually, to be able to work with all these athletes and from all across the country in these in these different uh, in these different disciplines. So 
if anybody's interested, check out process2perform.com and we'll be automating and putting all these things on uh, on a new platform here in, I guess, in March. So uh, it'll be hopefully able, we'll be able to reach out and, and help a lot more, a lot more athletes. Okay. Uh, Kev, you have anything you want to say to our fans before we sign off for the day? Yeah, well, uh, we didn't have a lot of fair questions, Mike. I guess uh, I guess we're up a little too early for them on a <laughs> Sunday morning. Uh, but we did just get a couple here. Uh, here, I uh, had this one saying Saints are interviewing Chiefs offense coordinator Eric Bieniemy today. Um, you know, we'll see how that goes. Uh, you know, I, it was something interesting that was brought up. You know, about this whole Rooney Rule thing kind of being like a a checklist more than just being an actual opportunity. Yeah. So, uh, you know, hey, who knows? But but, uh, but how do you, how do you how do you know? Like with Eric Bieniemy, it's so hard, right? Because Eric Bieniemy is legitimate. For five years, though, he's been a legitimate candidate. So I just go, it's just, I, listen, I, I, I'm I, not living in that world. But I just, it's it's hard for me. The Rooney Rule thing doesn't make any, it just, it never made sense because you're, once you put, once you put a structure like you have to do this, then by default, everything you do is almost feels disingenuous, right? Whereas Eric Benemy on his own merit is a legitimate candidate for any coaching job in the country. And it's it just, you know, I think we need to get rid of the Rooney rule and create some real legislation. Yeah, I think but, it had something to do with, you said something that happened back in Colorado back in the 90s, some sort of incident that dude, they may be holding over Every single person you know yeah. on the planet had something happen back in the 90s. You know what I mean? It's such, it is such a I, – I, I heard that last year when they were going through this Colorado thing. Yeah. I don't know what it was. And, you know, I'm just telling you, I guarantee you, because I know these guys – there are head coaches in the league that have skeletons in their closet, right? right. That, that they didn't come out during the interview process. And I can't, I can't imagine why. Right. Yeah, with me with the Rooney rule, it's instead of forcing them to interview the candidates, why not build better coaching development programs, networking opportunities so they can meet decision makers, become more comfortable with them. Cause I mean, there's a lot of nepotism in the NFL and it's always been that way. Kubiak's son is getting, uh, jobs, coaches' sons are bought up in the coaching world and just get that much more access to meet GMs, meet owners. They can just have better coaching programs for these guys to put them in front of these owners and decision makers earlier. I think that would be a much more effective solution than the Rooney rule was. But <laughs> Yeah. Hey, Mike, maybe you uh, reach out to your network and, you know, how you're doing a process perform for players, process to coaching. I mean, like yeah, you said, some sort now. of structure. Like. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it now. I actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I just started. Um, so I just started doing it with with some, with some some high school, some Southern California high school coaches. We have a four part um, uh, seminar. I'm actually doing it uh, over in Europe with some European guys starting in the middle of February. But I want to. I'm going to open it up on our platform that's opening up in March. And really, listen, you know, coaching. We talked about it before. You go to coaching clinics, and what do we talk about? We talk about scheme all the time, like game planning. I want to teach organizations how to how to get athlete buy-in first and foremost how to understand your way of doing business so you're developing your organizational culture your way of doing business means as a head coach no matter who leaves on your staff player transition scheme change you have your way of doing business right you have your way of communicating your vision you have your way of executing your standards um, we're going to go in a little bit further into developing your staff next uh, in the third session. And then we're in talking about total athlete development and player development in the fourth session. So, yeah, we're, we're doing that. And I think like 
you know, when I was working with, uh, when I was working and consulting with people in the, in the NFL, um, we never were able to get this program off the ground, but I'll say the, the thing that head coaches were always most interested in was the development of their staff. Cause they realized, especially with like the movement pattern stuff, we talked about the technique stuff that, that is missing out of it. And Kevin, I know that you and I know intimately well because of the offensive line play, um, that just that is not as obvious now because we're so you know it's a Madden everybody grew up playing Madden right so it's not it's not about the footwork and the details and the intimacy of the position it's about the scheme and whatnot so um, that's that's part of the of the process that I really want to help coaches get better at so therefore we can you know turn that into better players. Yeah, but uh, to wrap it up, but yeah, Mike, we uh, again, we appreciate you taking time out your very busy schedule. Um, you know, like I said, Pro Bowl today, Super Bowl next Sunday. Um, you know, look forward. Maybe we can, um, you know, do something. You know, either before the game or after, however, whatever your schedule work out. But we definitely like to definitely like to get you uh, back in here and um, chop it up some more. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, well, there you have it, uh, Mike. Thanks again for having uh, joining us this morning. Um, everyone else keep pounding. We'll see you next week.